Welcome to Lakeville. I'm producer Eric Sagan. Support for Lakeville comes from two places. Sponsors we genuinely love and people just like you. If you'd like to help us keep the lights on in Lakeville, you can find our Patreon at patreon.com slash Podcast. Again, that's patreon.com slash Podcast. The second wave of support comes from our sponsors, places and products we sincerely, truly love. The first is Elsa's. In the 90s, a Scandinavian woman took a cab from Toronto to Montreal and opened a bar in the Plateau Montréal. The rest is history. Perhaps the best place in Montreal, if not the world, to have a lively conversation, a good drink, and some great food, Elsa's wants you to enjoy each other. Also sponsoring the podcast is Good Mix. Good Mix includes a wide range of prebiotic fiber, which promotes microbial diversity in the gut flora. You can get 15% off your next purchase of Good Mix at Amazon and at goodmixfoods.com by using the code LIKEFILL when you check out online. You can find links to our sponsors at our website, www.likevillepodcast.com. Without further ado, here's our host, John Faithful Hamer, introducing today's episode. Welcome to the Likeville Podcast. This is John Faithful Hamer. Today, I'm going to be talking with writer Matthew Mather, uh, author of many, many books, like what, like 40 books? 14. 14, okay. <laughs> I knew it was like a four. Like, I've only, I've read three so far, uh, probably in the last week and a half, uh, feverishly. I've, um, so I'll be asking him about those books. His new book is Meet Your Maker, but I'm also uh, going to have a lot of questions um, about Cyberstorm, which is his most famous book, um, and then also uh, The Dreaming Tree. So welcome, Matthew. Thank so you. How would Thank you, you. how would oh, you John. introduce um, yourself to our to our listeners? Yeah, no, I, I mean, I've been a writer for about 10 years now, um, but it's only something that came to me, uh, you know, in the middle of my life, in the middle of a dream. It was uh, when I was 40 years old, I decided to quit my day job as a uh, as a technology entrepreneur and 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 try a different track in uh, in uh, in life. Um, so I took a year off work. When I was 40, took a year sabbatical and wrote a book called uh, Atopia Chronicles, um, which was my first book. And actually, in, in very classic um, uh, way, I, I, I tried to take that to a publisher. So for three years, I took that book to every publisher and every agent that I could talk to. Um, nobody took it. They all told me it was too long, too complicated, and would never sell. Uh, so then in 2013, uh, uh, sorry, I uh, took that and um, self-published it, and then it sold. It sold about 150,000 copies so far. This <laughs> 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 goes to show how awesome publishers are and recognizing I know, there's such what the public like... would like. Um, and uh, yeah, and that actually got optioned by ITV Studios in England to to do a TV series, which didn't pan out. But I'm pretty sure that they stole whole chunks of it to do Black Mirror. And if anybody's listening, I'll be sending my lawyers over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And you've so you've done a bunch of them that way, right? Like, because I've I mean I've had similar experiences uh, with publishers as well, where they're I mean, they're just totally clueless, and especially in Canada, where a lot of them are basically these little um, presses where nobody they only run like about five hundred copies, 
Yeah. I, and it's only for sale to other people in this little clique. And it's, they kind of, they run, they run completely off of grant money. Right. And I've brought this up to a couple of authors who I've had on the podcast and they get very uncomfortable about it because most of them just make all of their money off of, not off of readers, but off of government grants. Yeah. That, that whole world is, is invisible to me. I, when I started off writing, I completely, uh, for good or for bad, I ignored the fact that I was living in Canada and I just went and, um, started selling my stuff on, on Amazon in the U.S. Um, and I got an agent in the U.S. and I got a film agent in the U.S. and just, you know, pretend that I was American. And, uh, well, I didn't pretend I was American, but I just, I didn't look at the Canadian market as being anything that would be able to sustain me as a, uh, um, as a writer in that field. Um, and I just, Went and sold my stuff uh, over there, primarily to an American audience, which actually it does have some some impacts. You you have to understand who what, you know, the first rule of writing is you have to understand your audience. So when I'm writing novels, I'm always you know primarily looking at uh, an American audience as as the recipient of that. And in fact, you write it in American English and you write it with American idioms and you write it with American expressions uh, as opposed to writing as as a Canadian writer for you know for good or for bad. Although in my third novel, I did set a lot of the book in Montreal, so I did bring it back to Canada. Yeah, I just I <laughs> bought Darknet, and that's what I'm going to be. I'm going to be listening to that next. Actually, we have that queued up as our next. Uh, uh, yeah. But one of the things, my wife lived in Manhattan for a number of years before we met, yeah. and she said to me a couple of times when we were we were reading in uh, Cyberstorm, and then um, again. Um, in the dreaming tree, she said, this guy knows New York, like the back of his hand. Like this is, how do you do that? I mean, do you just, have I, you lived there before or do you just have like really good use of Google maps or, I mean, <laughs> do you visit there? No, my, my sister lived in New York, uh, for a long time. She lived, actually lived in meatpacking actually. So okay. that's, so that's <laughs> right why near the, it, like the, in, the club. Yeah. 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 Well, I, below. I've yeah. spent some of my own time in, in meatpacking district, I have mm-hmm. to say. Um, but she also had a place in, in Soho and, um, uh, and actually in Cyberstorm, uh, in that novel, I'm using, I'm actually using the setting of my, of my sister's first apartment, uh, which was in there. And so it was. So all of those like taxi drivers down the back alley and all that stuff. And, and actually, in that novel, there was a huge snowstorm that hits New York. And I was there in, was it 2003 or something, when they had a huge snowstorm. And I parked my car outside of her apartment, and the car was buried. You know, like the, It happens in Montreal all the time where you go outside, and all you see are lumps, and there's, yeah. no, there's no cars. But that was a huge snowstorm that completely paralyzed um, New York City, and that was kind of the inspiration uh, for that. So a lot of that stuff comes from i spent quite a lot of time in new york and uh not living there like just you know staying with friends and then and, and yeah i spent a lot of time in, in new york yeah well the, i asked you about uh, nicholas christakis's <coughs> blueprint because yeah. i kept I thinking read. i i kept thinking in cyberstorm that what he what christakis does is as his his data set is he looks at all of these published accounts and there's a lot of them they're uh, published accounts of shipwrecks where like uh, people were shipwrecked on an island and sort of the sur- describing like how they survived or, or didn't survive and these things were were very common these published accounts of these they were 
Uh, there was a huge public demand for them because you had a lot of shipping traffic. Yeah, I love them. You know, like Shackleton and, uh, and, and yeah, all that stuff, all that endurance, stuff. Endurance, right? So he he looked at all of those, um, and so he he called it like he has like one chapter which is all on accidental communities, which is shipwreck communities and things like that, uh, crashes where people are like stranded somewhere. Uh, then he looked at intentional communities, which is like kind of cults and communes that decide to go off somewhere by themselves. Like a, like a Jonestown? Um, it could be like that. <laughs> it could be like kibbutzes. It could be like anything, like intentional communities um, and then like experimental communities and all these different things. And he tries to say, why do some human groups survive and others don't? And what can we sort of, uh, what can we kind of derive as, what can we learn about human nature and human nature during a crisis, Mm -hmm. during a crisis situation? And what I I just thought was amazing. And I, I, like I said to you when uh, we were talking the other day, I'm actually, I'm going to assign Cyberstorm to one of my classes, my good and evil class, along with, uh, Nicholas Christakis's blueprint because it's such a good companion, you know, to see, you know, what are the kinds of what different types of human beings come into play, and right. what is it? Who is actually? And so, like you, for some people, it's very counterintuitive because you might think that the people that are that are going to survive in that situation are like the total, like ruthless sociopathic, like stock worker type. who's just like, like some coked up sociopathic. He's just like all about, you know, me, myself and I, I'm just taking care of number one. Uh, you might think that the ruthless people would actually survive. No, they don't. They're actually the, one of the first people to die, like in any kind of crisis. I, I think that's, that's, I mean, when you're talking about any society, um, I think that uh, you know the, the sort of the basic model that comes down to the, the you know, this famous example from game theory, the prisoner's dilemma. Which, if you play that that simple game, you'll discover that if each person goes for their own um, selfish aims, everybody up ends up with a with a worse with a worse end result. Whereas if you cooperate, you end up with a better end result. And so, you know, just from that simple bit of game theory, and there's a whole bunch of simulations you can run in game theory for for society. I think. Uh, it shows you that the cooperative model actually ends up winning over the the selfish model in pretty much every instance. And obviously, this will get into a discussion over socialism versus pure capitalism and selfishness versus you know cooperative behavior. But you know, in, in human societies anyway, it's always the um, it's always the cooperative behavior that wins out. So, I mean, I was thinking about those kinds of things uh, when I was writing Cyberstorm, and also I did research, primary research on. Um, Hurricane Katrina, like the disaster that happened there. I had some friends that were setting up uh, tents, uh, and a friend of mine did a documentary called Intent City. So intensity, but in like intense city where they mm-hmm. set up tents out. And um, and you get when you collect stories from there, which wasn't from an outside view, it wasn't all that complicated. But they did like when the storm came in, it wiped out all the VHF uh, antennas, and so a lot of the cops didn't have like the the mobile communications, and so you had this breakdown in communications and things that happened, and then you had a breakdown in information, and then you had conspiracy theories and things, and then why aren't people coming to pick us up? And that was in a fairly contained um, disaster, so I modeled a lot of the stuff that happened in Cyberstorm on what happened in Katrina, but I writ it like 
and a bit a bit of a larger thing. And it also had a bit of an escape from New York. You know, you're yes. you're on an island, and then all of a sudden they're yeah. like, you know, there's only so many bridges in, and then and then they're like quarantine the island, and then you're stuck on the island as you know an unknown attack is coming, and the whole place is blanketed in snow, and people are trying to survive. And it, a lot of a lot of apocalyptic stories, apocalyptic fiction, obviously, is a very popular. Uh, topic on on Amazon, but a lot of those tend to go with like you said. You've got like the the guys with the big guns, and they they take over, and everybody you know immediately devolves into animalistic behavior and, and beating each other up. But that's not that's not really what happens. You know, there are you know there are people that want to kind of go that way, but then there are most people want to try and cooperate, and everybody's trying to figure out the thing. And and New York is actually our our. You know, for all the reputation that New Yorkers have as being rude and, and whatever, if you actually go there, people are super kind and everybody's extremely helpful. And like, if you have a problem, somebody will stop on the street and probably, you know, find a way to help you or solve your problem or go with you. And I think that's the kind of experience I was trying to, um, trying to, uh, to bring out in that book that not, you know, it's not going to be just, I mean, eventually the book does devolve and, and, you know, things go, things hit the fan and start spinning everywhere. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, I want it. That's always the thing. It's like, cause your books have some pretty amazing twists. And so I don't want to give away any of the, the twists because they're a lot of fun and they're, you don't anticipate them at all. Like I, I did not like, well, okay. Well, actually, Annalisa somehow i just i still don't understand how i didn't but annalisa somehow figured out who the bad guy in the dreaming tree was um she figured out that it was him um yeah before i did because she was she was just like reasoning it out she's like who had access to power of attorney (laughs) and had access to all of it it's only one person that had all that like it's well, got to be. I know it doesn't seem like, but it's got to be. Well, like, that's yeah. when, when you're writing, and and that book is more um, sort of the the murder mystery kind of thing with a limited yes. set of characters. And any time you have a limited set of characters, you always like. And I try to make also the books small enough that you've got you know a half a dozen characters you have to keep track of. And it's the the game in those type of books is who did it, and you and also I you don't I don't have any ex machina kind of like. Just throwing something at the yeah. reader, like a, which I really like, because yeah. I, I find I feel I almost want to just throw a book down when they do something and it's like just like like a supernatural thing or a dream sequence or a, yeah. I know. Although okay, I I'll grant Roy the dream sequence on the plane to India, but that's because he's been on speed for like three days straight, and so he hasn't been sleeping. Yeah, yeah, he's gonna he's gonna have some crazy thing. <laughs> he he gets one. Okay, but when yes, when when authors rely on that all the time, it's it is a bit of a cheap thing when you when you do the the dream sequence that wasn't real sort of thing. But I I do I try to keep it honest and I try to. Um, actually the, the way that when I comes to writing, uh, mysteries and thrillers like that, I try, I look at it as if you're doing a, um, um, it's like a close up magician, you know, somebody who's doing a card trick in front of you. Sure. My son did it. Yeah. So you're, you're you're doing, you're right in front of the person, you got the cards right there and they're looking right at your hands and there's no way you can. And so it's the same thing. If you're going to design a good thriller or a good thriller mystery type of thing, it's got to be like close-up magic. Like everybody's you, there's you have six cards, which is six characters. Everybody's watching those six characters, and you're you're putting everything out on the table. And you, I purposely have to put the clues straight, like right in your face. But can you pick up on them? And are you smart enough to connect them? And then at the end of it, when you finally reveal the trick, 
then you remember all that stuff. Yeah, like yeah. it's it's like the um, uh, you know the um, uh, when Bruce Willis at the end of uh, you know uh, Sixth Sense, yeah, he says yeah. you know when you finally reveal it, and then you go, oh, you know, like all I those see things. Dead all people, they don't know <laughs> yeah. they're dead. Oh, that he's dead. Being, that's being used a few times. Though. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's, I mean, that's one of the things that I really like about the twists in your novels is that it doesn't feel cheap. Like when, when you do get like the reveals, you get this sense of like, oh, like you just like, you connect a bunch of things. You're like, oh, that's what the fuck that was. Oh yeah. Okay. And you get it and you're like, oh, okay. Okay. I see all the dominoes falling. And so it's, it's satisfying. Right. It's, uh, you get the the payoff needs to be satisfying when you when you set up a book and you you set up all the mystery of it you need to get to the end where you have a, a satisfying you know payoff to all of the build up but then it all needs to connect together in a way that that makes sense and and leaves you feeling like you've had a full meal and not just like you know a light lunch or something how do you how do you well i guess i don't know i mean how do you do that though cuz it seems to me like it's so easy uh we were talking about this before we went on live that, I mean, yeah, there are techniques for for writing a thriller or doing any kind of art, right? But as as Baldazar Castiglione says in the book of the courts here, you know, all true art is that which does not appear as art. So nonchalant. So how how do you do that in a way that you can't see the seams, like where it just like it just flows. I mean, did you have to work at that, or is that just like a skill you just you just you just always had that? Uh, you know, I I did not take any writing class. <laughs> the last so when I was forty years old, I decided to take a year off and, and write the first book. But before that, the last English whatever you you know class that I took in in language was in high school, like my grade eleven high school. But I don't know, I just decided uh, to to start writing, and that that was not really a uh, in fact. It took me until my third book for me to read a book about writing, like about what the tech, <laughs> what the techniques of writing are. Like I didn't this even is know. So perfect. <laughs> until my, it was. I think I was into my third or fourth book before I actually read a book talking about like there should be an act one, an act two, an act three. But you know, we are so, and and this comes down to storytelling. Like human beings are, uh, we are storytelling machines. Like sure. from birth, the way that we, like if you sit down with your friend at a at a football game. Um, or if you get home from work and, and you talk to your wife, we tell each other stories. And the story has a beginning and, and, and a, a beginning, has an end. It has it usually has a twist, you know, some way that you, oh, I saw my friend Bob, and did you know this about it? And then it has like a satisfying but surprising conclusion. And that's we are we are taught from a young age, and that that's actually how we communicate with each other. Like every interaction that you have with somebody is always. You're telling a story, I tell a story, and we're relating to each other in stories. And so there is a there's a craft and an art, um, which I which I find that the I think it dulls the actual to a certain extent it can dull the actual storytelling. Because as I've become more skilled and more knowledgeable about how to write screenplays and what the you know, the all the different beats and and now I can hit when I write a book, I'm like I'm hitting the beats, you know, I've got the inciting incidents, I've got the introduction of this character, I've got like the end of Act One with the turn and decision and the mounting conflicts and the big, you know, the midpoint bomb and then the, 
the you know the hero at the mercy of the villain and the and the you know the depth of the darkness and I've got all these set points and so you hit all these set points as you're going through which are standard sort of screenplay or book writing set points but uh, beats um uh, but you kind of miss the the heart of the storytelling and so I try to strike a balance between there's the craft which I know now and then when you're writing you just sort of you got to let it rip a little bit and let the characters give them agency let them run around in the world you've constructed and just let the story happen so it's sort of a balancing act between those two things that um, that I that I try to do now and now I've I try to pull away from the the craft a little bit and just let the um let the story come out but I still try to hold up the big tent poles like I say this is the world, this is the start, and this is the end point, and this is the midpoint, which is sort of holds up the middle of the tent. And then apart from that, I just let the the story rip, which is which is the most fun thing. Sometimes I don't even know what the characters are gonna do sometimes. They just sort of they they run around and, and, and do things and sometimes I have secondary characters that just come out of the story that are that are really surprising as well. Yeah, well you have in um in the Dreaming Tree, which I just finished today which is sort of like a prequel to your most recent book that just came out um, yeah. last last Tuesday yeah. at Meet Your Maker. Uh, you have this delightful, compelling, amazing character, Delta Devlin, who I, I guess she was sort of a minor character that became a, a more important character in The Dreaming Tree, and now... Yeah, you've decided to devote a whole series to her, which is a really good move. I mean, she's amazing. Yeah, she she's literally the detective who can see things that nobody else can. And I, <laughs> I, I got the idea for her when I was writing the Dreaming Tree because I needed a detective. And then I thought, oh, let's put. I'd always had I I'd read about this thing a couple of years ago called tetrachromatacy, which is a real world condition where um, some people have a a fourth cone in their eyes, and it's a real. And it's not really exactly a mutation. It's just a recessive gene. And, and I think it's something like 0.5% of the human female population has the combination of these recessive genes, um, which in the fourth cone, usually normal humans, quote unquote, have three cones, which is red, green, and blue. And those react to different wavelengths of light. And without getting too technical, a, do- a dog has two cones, so they can see 10,000 colors. We have three cones that enables us to see a million colors, but a tetrachromat, has four cones and they can see 100 million colors. So they can literally see 99 million more colors than we can and in slightly different wavelengths. And it was only in, even though this has existed in humans forever, it was only in 2010 that scientists discovered that there are these tetrachromats living among us who can see all these colors that regular humans can't see. And I thought, I was reading and we were at, we were talking before about where do you get your ideas for things. And I'd been reading about this in a science magazine and I thought, this would be the best detective ever. Like there was, I was reading this story about it. There was an artist who was a tetrachromat and she could paint these amazing things that nobody else could do because she had this sense of color. Yeah. And I thought this would make like, I a, love that. How like Delta Devlin has these, her mom's a painter, like a bohemian artist and that she has all these paintings in her house that to other people just look like white on white paintings but to her, they're, they're these like vivid, amazing things that only she. So it's like her house is filled with art that that only she, she created only for herself. I love this. <laughs> right. I mean, this is like such a cool idea. Like it's, it's just amazing. <laughs> God, you uh, yeah, and so that's that she can, and so she, as a detective, her her father is a, is a New York uh, detective, and so that this is this is the beginning of that character which we met in in Dreaming Tree, which she was such a great character that decided to 
to devote a new series to her. And actually, I've done a lot of my stuff being self-published, but for this new series, Dreaming uh, Meet Your Maker, um, I've started. I've got a publisher, which Blackstone Publishing has, has picked up this uh, series, and they're a great, great publisher. Um, and uh, yeah, it's just come out in hardcover, and it's it's doing well on Amazon, which is which is great. And uh, yeah, yeah, the audio the audio book version. Oh, I, I should Lavoie. tell for all of our our <laughs> listeners. The audiobook version of Meet Your Maker, which is what Annalise and I listened to, it's read by this actress named January Lavoie. She has such an amazing voice. <laughs> it's like she has like one of those voices, like she could read the phone book and it would be fantastic. Be sexy. But uh, yeah, just like <laughs> just amazing, like so sexy, such an amazing voice. So her reading your novel is just. Uh, it's fantastic. It's uh, it, yeah. it really works. It, like she is, uh, you know, when it's made into a movie, it it has to be her who plays the part of like, or so she has <laughs> I to hadn't play. Even thought of that actually, Delta Devlin. Like, because in my mind, she's now she's Delta Devlin. Yeah, like she's, I, you uh, know what? I hadn't even thought of that, but uh, yeah, that is that is. She actually is a, a fairly famous actress in her own right. So yeah, that would. Yeah. That would make a lot of sense. She's yeah. uh, well. One of the main themes, without giving away the the plot of the novel, one of the main themes in Meet Your Maker is something called the Fourth Industrial Revolution. Can you explain to our listeners what this is? Because I know I've mentioned this to to probably I don't know about ten people since I picked up your book, and uh, most most of them we're not familiar with it. So, cause I guess, cause I, I hang around with a lot of those mile end crowd, but like the, the nerds. And so can you sort of explain what is the fourth industrial revolution? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's the, um, we've been through a couple of industrial revolutions. You know, you had the, uh, you know, the second one, which is, I think when they were making, um, you know, when you went just from making things by, you know, everything custom made and built by hand into, uh, you know, uh, I can't remember what the trigger point for the second one is. The third one, though, is definitely like mass industrialization, and um, you know the uh, the first one was like like steam, right? It was like all yeah, like steam, steam engines and stuff like oh, that. That was, that was the second steam one. Steam engines, actually. and then the second one is like all like Ford and and kind of uh, mass production, and and uh, it's it's flows on like on fossil fuels, and you know a lot of like. Uh, electricity and stuff like that and then the third one's like the computer one yeah right? i think it's like i think it's, i think it's information digital technology so right so the four, the fourth one is is kind of the merger of all, of all these things so you've got the merger of and it, it is it really is a merger of a lot of different things it's it's not just the manufacturing but it's also like biotechnology information technology artificial intelligence all of these things combining together and then with things like uh 3D printers, which is just a word that we attach to something, but these are sort of, um, you know, on-demand manufacturing. There's probably 15 different ways that you can um, do what we call 3D printing, which is just actually manufacturing things on demand um, and then using artificial intelligence to create the components. And it could be things made out of metal. It could be things made out of plastic. And it also could be things made out of living tissue. You can actually deposit living tissue, grow cell cultures, and then build scaffolding up and actually build organs and build ears. And ultimately you could, you could in theory build, you know, print an entire human body and then, uh, you know, stick a brain in that or maybe even remanufacture the brain. I mean, there's no really no limit to it on the manufacturing side though. 
um, the fourth industrial revolution really goes around being instead of like um, manufacturing, like like mass producing, like one thing, you'd actually be able to customize it and, and then, you know, even get it manufactured at home or have that sent to you, you know, through Amazon and, but having something custom built for you, just built one at a time. Um, and we're already, we're already starting to be able to do that. You know, in the, um, for instance, in the, in the publishing world, you used to have to get a book published and printed and this was like a big deal. Nowadays, I can, I print a book or I create a book, I upload it onto Amazon and then you do print on demand and they manufacture one book at a time, put it in a box and ship it off to somebody. Um, and so this is already happening in our world and, and where, you know, you have something that is custom made and, and custom manufactured just one at a time and then put it in a box and ship to you using, you know, robots and drones and all that sort of technology. Like it's already happening right now in our world. And so, uh, yeah, that, that book was an exploration of what that means and then a cautionary tale and then the technology and, and then mixing out all into like a fast paced thriller where, where we end up on the, on the, on the new, <laughs> Uh, we end up in Ukraine fighting the Russians or, or are we? And, you know, that's, that's, that's where that book ended yeah, up. Yeah, that would, I mean, that was just, it just fascinating. Like going into the, have you been to the Ukraine or was that just all just like, you know what? Fiction I was, writing. I was supposed to go, I have a, um, a long time, um, uh, reader of mine who lives in Ukraine for a long time and who's actually been Stefan Clavel. If he's listening, <laughs> he's, uh, but we've been talking a long time and he'd actually invited me to, uh, to come over there. Um, he has a couple of companies set up and he's got a whole, he's got a whole existence and, and been talking and he also has something in Hong Kong. But anyway, but I've been supposed to go over and I was, but while I was writing this book, I was supposed to go over, but then it just didn't work out, but he'd supplied me with a lot of information. Okay. Um, that's how, because I, there's like, a, and, and there's I would, a I would friend. email with him and say, you know, talk about where would I go out or what's the attitudes or what do people think about this? And so I, and I, and actually that, that's another topic is all of my books. I, um, in my email newsletter, which everybody can join up to if they go to matthewmather.com, it's M-A-T-H-E-R.com. Um, <clears throat> uh, every time one of my readers joins up to my newsletter, I have a questionnaire that I send them back saying like, what do you, what do you do in life? Um, and then tell me about some experience or something that you think is remarkable, something fairly short, but I've got a database of, of like firefighters and people that work in the FBI and even people who work for the CIA and all this sort of stuff. So whenever I'm writing a book, I, I'll go and I'll go and uh, research, I'll go and say, could you find me? I'll talk to I have a marketing system that works with me and I'll say, let's, like, let's find a nurse or find a doctor. And I've got a, when I wrote a book, the book Polar Vortex, which I don't think you've, you've read yet, but I have one of my fans is a pilot that flies 777s over the North Pole. Wow. And so the setup for that Polar Vortex is about an airliner that crashes on the North Pole, crashes on the Arctic ice pack, and then there's something on the airplane that somebody was trying to get, and then what is it? And then you have this survival adventure of these people trying to escape from the frozen north. Um, where they don't know <laughs> it's actually kind of like the uh the it, it's like a murder on the orient express except on the north pole from the crash <laughs> nice. that's the, the model of that book um but when i was doing the crash sequence for that i talked to this pi uh, pi pilot monte dunard who's who's if you're if you're listening thank you monte <laughs> um but he's ex you know uh, air force and then he and so he actually sent me pictures as he's flying his triple seven over the North Pole, so he's showing me like camera photos, like right out of the cockpit, 
And then I asked him, okay, like if you had to crash your airplane on, on the North Pole, what would be the sequence of things that you would do in the cockpit? And what would you say to the, to the passengers? And what would you do? And how would you, how would you, what would be your landing? And so he, because he's a pilot, they have to know all eventualities. So he just sent me an email describing, here's what I do if I have to, if I have to crash land on the North Pole. So in the sequence where the, the triple seven crashes in the North Pole, it's like all, straight out of, you know, what the pilot would do in, in, in being able to crash land an airplane up there. Um, so everything, everything in my books, I try to I actually go back to my readers and, and I say, like, if I got somebody from the FBI or, you know, and I've got an FBI agent that I'm working with on a, on a book that's upcoming, actually, um, Brent Watkins, he's in Las Vegas. Um, and we have a whole scenario, actually, of how we could cut off Las Vegas, which is going to be a lot of fun. <laughs> going to cause some trouble in Sin City in an upcoming book. Uh, but I just use all these this, this input from real people that work out in the, in the field to, to add some sense of reality to what I'm doing in the books. And that's where a lot of that comes from. It, it really works. I mean, it, it really works. Uh, there's uh, a good, good friend of mine and a guest that I had on. Uh, he's been on the podcast twice, actually. Uh, but I had him last time after Tom Wolfe died. And uh, we had a long conversation about Tom Wolfe. Tom Wolfe is like his favorite. He, he, he huge fan of Tom Wolfe. And he was talking about like why Tom Wolfe clashed with the sort of literary establishment and why they didn't couldn't stand him and why they. And he gave a number of different reasons. And he said, "Well, uh, you know, for one, he was a Southerner." Uh, he was, you know, did, didn't fit in. They were like a different type, kind of neurotic, northeastern, urban people. He didn't have that. They tended to be, most of the people who end up being writers tend to be kind of nerds who were picked on in high school. He was a jock in high school. He was a baseball player. He had no masculinity issues that he was trying to work out through his writing. <laughs> uh, like, I'm trying to think he, if I'm a nerd or not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> he, uh, he went through like all the different on. sort of like, uh, nobody could write a character like Chuck very sympathetically if you had masculinity issues. <laughs> In Cyberstorm, he's presented very sympathetically. So, Chuck, uh, Chuck, yeah, got, I know Chuck. Chuck, is, Chuck would Chuck would be by the typical writer that Aaron Haswell was saying couldn't stand Tom Wolfe would never present a Chuck favorably. Chuck would always be an asshole. Whereas, yeah. like you present him as yeah, kind of misguided and his prepper things a little weird and doesn't work out for him quite the way he, he said but but he's he's basically a decent person he's not uh, and uh, any anytime you have a post apocalyptic book or or an apocalyptic book which is which is what this is you always have to have the the uh, the familiar cast of characters you usually have to have some scientific person and and you always need to have the prepper person like somebody who's <laughs> who's been planning for this their whole lives yeah, and then yeah. when it happens you're like oh yeah let's get it let's get it on you know i'm ready where's my bug out bag <laughs> You know that's a great character too. But he, but he's also once again he's not presented in a. It doesn't feel contrived. He feels like a real person. Like I know Chuck. I have met Chuck. I I know he's he's you know he's got he's a little little kooky, but he's like a decent person, and he's got his blind spots too. That's the fun. They they all have their blind spots, including yeah. his wife. I, I try to write characters that are, you know, and. 
I, I tried to write characters that are balanced. Um, and even in, you know, the, the current political climate, because books always end up reflecting the world that we live in in some way. It's just funny when you go and read books from the 70s and you go, oh, like you can just see how the books 70s and 80s were reflecting the times that they lived in, whereas you read books now and it doesn't feel like they, but they are reflecting the times that we live in. And part of that is this whole right-wing, left-wing thing that we seem to have got caught up in, which, as a side note, right-wing and left-wing doesn't mean anything like this liberal is concerned. Like, the mean, the words have no meaning anymore. No. But, you know, I, I think the, I, I try to, so some of the characters have those type of leanings, just because that's the type of world, that we, the polarized type of world that we live in. But those characters, I don't, I never try and paint any of them as, you know, I think there's, there is that tendency right now to demonize or to subhumanize the, you know, the other side as not thinking and idiots. But they all, these are real people that have children and families and, and feelings and they just, they think something and they have good reasons. I try to highlight the fact that they have good reasons for thinking the way that they think and they're trying to protect their families and trying to live, you know, to wind their way through this crazy thing that we call life. And, and it's, it's not, you know, they, they all have good reasons for doing those things. And so I try to paint characters that are, that are real and everybody has doubts. You know, when you go on social media, everybody's raving lunatic and is sure of themselves. But if you meet that same, if I bet you, if you sat down with that same person in a bar and had a conversation, you would have a very, you'd have a very reasoned conversation with a reasonable person. So I think it's a social media and we're deviating now, but I think social media is, is the heart of the problem and not the actual people. I think the people, the ability to have these conversations in absenteeism of the person that's sitting next to you creates this pull, like heightens the, the, uh, the divide instead of sitting down at a bar and chatting about stuff, which, which I think would, you know, brings everything down to a more manageable level. I'm going off on a segue here. No, it's, bring, it's, it's, bring it's totally, it's totally true. I mean, Jonathan Haidt, uh, who we've, we've, we've had on the podcast twice, uh, in his book, um, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion, he says that you know, a lot of the craziness you see in American politics right now and the left, right, liberal conservative, a lot of it is a function of um, definitely social media, but it's also that the amount of like informal interactions that people have with each other have been drastically reduced. And so he gives, he gives a lot of different examples. But one of the examples he gives is he says, uh, used to be that Congress, they all had to actually like live there while Congress is in session. And this had all sorts of wonderful spinoff benefits because it meant that like your kids as a Democratic, whatever, representative, your kids are in the same soccer team as that Republican... And so you see each other like in the stands at the soccer game and at parent teacher conferences. Oh, your kid's in trouble. Yeah, mine too. And like you see, you have all these informal interactions in different ways. You run into each other in restaurants and bars, the street. But he said, like Newt Gingrich, one of the first things that he did is he changed those rules and said people would would be able to live in wherever Utah and fly in for session and not live there. And so it meant that you had no more informal interactions with these people, which meant that the stridence, stridency and the ideology and the kind of the people digging their and seeing each other just as an opponent rather than as like, like a guy, you know, like 
you see him coming out of the bathroom. He's got his shirt hanging out, like whatever, like like a guy or like a, a woman like we're talking who's about the pub last. Uh, like <laughs> like you see, rather than seeing them as like just a another human being who right. is You're, has like is a parent, who's a husband, wife. This is the dehumanizing, right? You're, yeah, and you suddenly just see them as the the embodiment of a position that you're against. And so you start to get, you know, as you said, the demonization and right. And that's, uh, and I think like the worst kind of fiction, which unfortunately is a lot of modern fiction from Emile Zola forward is, um, is kind of a kind of uh, political ideology wrapped with a sugar coating of a story or something. It's not, it's not, it's a morality tale. It's like John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, right. but so in I, modern. So each person is rather than being like, uh, okay, yeah, he's the prepper. He's the, Chuck's the prepper. And okay, he's the sciencey guy. And he said, she's the, like, they're real human beings first and foremost with failings and with hypocrisies and with contradictions and that just makes them more fun and believable. Like they're not cardboard cutouts. Right. I, I try to stay away from the, uh, I can't remember who said it, but, you know, said if you want to send a message, like use a, use a telegram, obviously that's from like 100 years ago. But that's instead of like when I write books, I'm trying, well, there are some, you know, uh, like in Cyberstorm, obviously I won't give it away, but there is, you know, there's a, there's a, there's a reflection held up, you know, about our prejudices. And that's, that's the whole twist in, in that story. Uh, which which has resonated with with an awful lot of people, but I try not to tell uh, moralizing tales. I try to um, I try to use characters actually on well. One of the things that's important in books these days, I think, is using a diverse set of characters, and I try to use you know characters of all colors and shades and um, and backgrounds. In fact, Delta Devlin's African American or would identify as being African American, and, and I try to actually in my books I. I write one series or set of books from a, with a female protagonist and one with a male and then one with a female and one with a male. So I kind of go, try to go back and forth in, in that. Um, but when you're including a diverse set of characters, it's not just having an African-American and a, and a Latino and a Latinx and whatever. But I think it's also having people with different ideological um, stripes. And actually when I start writing a book, I try to create a kind of a matrix of different, different types of people that fit different roles. And you use those to... Um, uh, to fulfill different storytelling roles within within the novel, and also not trying to moralize or show that one is better than the other, um, just showing people showing things for what they are and how they can have intelligent discussions. Actually, that's the one thing that I enjoy doing the most in the books is still having characters have intelligent discussions without devolving into "you're an idiot." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and those are some of the, the, those are some of the most fascinating. Uh, points actually in in the novels that i like is where they actually they get into this conversation and you'll give both of the characters really good arguments <laughs> like yeah. like really really so that if somebody is reading it it's not going to be if they're if they're trying to play that i i personally think it's a really stupid game uh to try and like ooh, i want to figure out what the author's perspective is i don't care what the author's but but anyway but if you want to play that game when you're reading it you really wouldn't be able to tell like who matthew Mather is and what his politics are because it's not you don't really tip your hand at all as to what but but the thing that uh, that aaron haspel was saying about uh, tom wolf is he says you know tom wolf uh used to always say 
that the most important thing in in a book is just having really good material. Like really good material, like really good story, really good interesting it's subject the, matter. It's the storytelling. And yeah. uh, and he said this totally went against the grain of modern literature which was that the artiste can talk about a red wheelbarrow if he wants and talk about that forever and it'll be amazing because he's just so fucking brilliant. Right. And Tom Wolf he spent a huge amount of time going out into the world like you're doing with the talking to the nurses and the pilots and the firefighters and the FBI people and actually talking to people who have real information about the world and saying what's going on there and then bringing that real world into the story which makes the story so much more interesting yeah. because people are people are most fascinated by by the world not by the inner workings of an artist's mind for yeah. the most part well i i am not dostoevsky i'm like not trying to write like the you know i'm not, I'm not trying to write the great american novel uh, either right design my books uh actually the the mental image that i use of my books is like a bag of potato chips and each chapter is like a chip and it's like so delicious you want to have another one and you, just, <laughs> you can't stop because each chapter is like you know two thousand words and you eat it and you go i can have one more and you, just keep, <laughs> you keep going and all of a sudden it's five in the morning and you're just if you're still eating the bag of potato that chips, is exactly i could I've not won. put your books are such they are really really addictive like yeah and so i, I purposely design them like that and i also design them in I always loved like, you know, Ian Fleming, James Bond, these sort of escapist, you know, when people sit down to read a book, especially in, in today's day and age, and, and they give me their five bucks on Amazon to, they're looking for, uh, they're looking for entertainment. I mean, I try to provide a little bit more than that. I try to provide, um, you know, information and something I hadn't thought of before. And, and one of the things that you um, said when you got the end of Meet Your Maker was the end notes where I, where I broke down, these are all the real things in the story, and here's further research, and you can go look up all the stuff I talk about in the story. I have you always include endnotes where you can go and um, research stuff for yourself and find out what what is real and what's fiction and what's coming. And that I, I that's the part of it that I really enjoy for myself is learning. Like it's lifelong learning. That's what actually the thing that I enjoy the most about being a writer is it allows me to indulge my uh, indulge my love of just like. I get fascinated with like 3D printers and, and fourth industrial revolution. And I get to spend six months researching it and talking to people and getting into it. And so then I, I kind of brain dump that off to my readers. I go, okay, here's a fast paced, addictive thriller, mystery, you know, whatever format or apocalyptic story I'm trying to, but I try to wrap all of this stuff inside of there. And then, so when you, when you finish it, you've had fun, but then hopefully you're also smarter than, or have more knowledge <laughs> than when you started it. And that's sort of the double, I'm trying to feed that to the reader in a way that is not like, it's not hard. You're absorbing the information because you're enjoying absorbing the information. And so that's, I guess that's part of what I'm trying to do too. But to go back a little bit, I try, when you're saying you wouldn't know who Matthew Mather was, I also try to make sure I, personally, I melt into the background. So you don't hear me at all. I'm just presenting these characters in the story. And, and so I try to melt, I try to melt away from the uh, being present as a storyteller. So oh, you you do that so well. I mean, I, I there's a lot of people that I uh, that I you know grew up with and that I know who have you know become writers, and it's just so transparently obvious when you read their novels that 
Yeah, the protagonist is basically them. Uh, and the protagonist like says lots of things that I've heard them say, and it's very very obvious. And the you know the love interest is like yeah that's his ex girlfriend. I remember her like <laughs> like he just changed the name and like a couple of different things like oh she's five nine you know, instead you know. of five seven. Like you'll, he you'll did, end up in one of my books. Yeah, way. like Everybody he changed, does. but um, but yeah, it is it is interesting when you see somebody who um, clearly. Yeah, like just melts away. Like I don't, I don't find. I mean, maybe, maybe there's like characters where aspects of them. I guess that's you know an aspect of of you. But there's no, there's no one character where you could obviously say, oh, that's clearly just that's yeah, like Matthew's that sock puppet. <laughs> like, yeah, there's some of them that come a bit closer and, and further away. It's actually interesting in the, in the Delta Devlin series, which I'm writing now. Uh, I'm including a lot more. I guess personal um, detail, or even even though that she's a woman and she's going, but there's things in there like her father has has cancer, and my father actually had cancer and died about a year and a half ago. So I'm I'm sort of oh, using I'm sorry. it. Wow. Yeah, thank you. I'm, I'm using that um, experience as kind of a catharsis to to talk about it, and so some of the emotions and things that she goes through are things that I so the kind of the emotions and things that I felt and things that I noticed and little observations and details that I went through, I was including in those books. And actually at the end of the book I'm writing right now, which is Out of Time, which is the 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 next installment in Delta Devon, um, which is actually a time travel detective thriller. And I know it sounds crazy, but it, by the time you get to the end of it, it's all perfectly believable. Um, but at the end of that, she, 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 well, during the book, she finds out she's pregnant. And then the book after, she's going to have a child. And I, my wife's going to have a, our first baby in about a month from now. So I'm like, congratulations. I'm writing through all these emotions of, of her father having cancer and then, and then passing away, which is happening in the current book without giving too much away. So I'm using it cause, you know, to catharsize my feelings and observations and things that happened to me. And, and then hopefully in the next book, when she actually has the baby, I'm going to be talking about <laughs> observations of things that happened to me. So that's, that's, that's specific to that, the Delta Devlin series. And I'm using those. But then I have a whole other series of books which are completely separate. Like I'm doing um, my cyber series, which is Cyberstorm and then Cyberspace, which just came out earlier this year. And I'll take a segue there. Actually, Cyberspace came out because the, the U.S. Department of National Intelligence asked me to come to do war game planning exercises in Washington, D.C. last summer. Um, and they went through a whole bunch of exercises talking about space-based assets. And, and when they called me up, they said, uh, you know, we want you to come to Washington. And they were going to pay to fly me and all this stuff. And I said, you know, I'm a writer of, of fiction. And, and they said, yes, we know who you are, Mr. Mather. Said, of course, you, you know, I, I showed up. It was actually like CIA and all these. Anyway, all to say, That's though, wild. but I used, I used that <laughs> real experience. They, you know what they wanted? And I can't go more into detail of it, even though it wasn't secret raid or anything. But the... Um, they wanted to have a, a storyteller to, so they were sort of they were like brainstorming all of these scenarios that could happen. But then they said, "What do we? Ha- what would what would regular people think?" And we they wanted to have a storyteller to to tell like to to give their impression of what how some of these things might play out, which was really interesting. And actually, I used a lot of the information I was there, and I checked with them, and they said you can use the information, and I put that into a book, which is cyberspace, talking about attacks on our, our digital infrastructure in space and what would happen, which you haven't read yet. Yeah, no, I, so are the other cyber, are those like a lot of the same characters? Yeah. So from cyber, Cyberstorm? Cyberstorm, you get, oh, to wow. meet, you get to meet Chuck and Mike and Luke, who is now two years old in the original Cyberstorm. And, and actually, I wrote the original Cyberstorm six years ago. 
So when I wrote Cyberspace this year, actually, Luke is now it's six years later in time, so he's eight years old, and all the characters are, have gotten a, a few years older and got a few more gray hairs. But they we we laugh by the way because our our <laughs> second son is named Indigo. And so you oh, have really that, <laughs> Vincent Indigo. You have the character like Indigo, and they call him Indy. Yeah. Our son is called we call him Indy. Like our seventeen-year-old. It's uh, Indi- so it's very is, weird. <laughs> yeah, Indy. He is actually a character from my first book, Atopia Chronicles. Um, oh, wow. But Atopia is set in the year 2065, so it's set 45 years in the future from now. But I wrote that book 10 years ago, so it was 55 years when I originally wrote it. But he, you, you have to read the end game for... So if you read Atopia, you can read the end game for what happens to uh, Mr. Damon Indigo 50-something you know, years in the future. But I use I came all the way back, and I'm using him as a character in Cyberstorm, and then in Cyberspace and Cyber War, which is the next one. He's just an amazing character. He's... I'm actually gonna do. I'm thinking of doing a spinoff series with him, which would be like the Indigo Files, which will be like uh, just him as kind of another future. I don't know what he would be, but he's a guy that's obsessed with the future. As he's, yeah. Oh, and yeah. he say, he's he's talking. He says again and again, like. If I could have seen the future, I could have saved my fiance, so, and I could have without without yeah. giving anything away in Atopia Chronicles, uh, he becomes the person that he forms something called the Future News Network, which is um, they get so good at forecasting, he starts to be able to do forecasting for individual people. So he gets into this this thing where he can start to tell the it's the news of tomorrow today. So everything that's going to happen tomorrow, he tells you all about the celebrity news stories the day before they're actually going to happen which actually starts affecting the way the future is going to roll out. And so they have like, these future casts that come closer and closer. And then in that book, actually, everybody's living in these almost unlimited virtual worlds. So they can actually live an hour in the future, or two hours in the future, or a day in the future, and the future news network thing responds. It's a very complicated book. But, um, but he's the, the creator of the future news network, which becomes like the, the biggest you know, trillion-dollar corporation on the planet. And that's his, that's his endgame. There's a whole story that he gets embroiled in in, in in that set of uh in that set of books which is also a trilogy which goes um off into a into a very different future uh but yeah you, i borrowed his character and then brought him all the way back to a young man in cyberstorm and then he and and we're gonna have i think i'm gonna evolve him into his own series of books which are gonna spread forward into the future oh i would i would love to see more of him because he's <laughs> he was definitely not just because of the name thing he was just this very uh Almost like a kind of a cross between MacGyver and like I don't know Elon Musk. Uh, yeah, yeah, like a kind of yeah. like a really sort of freaky, freaky character. He's like uh, he's interesting, and he also he's he at least in Cyberstorm he is has like a very very good heart. He's very well intentioned. Like people trust him almost immediately because he just just seems very. Guileless, he's, he doesn't have an agenda. Like he's actually like right. pretty. Yeah, and I, I mean, maybe he's gonna go evil later, and I don't know about it. But like, no, no. In he, this, in he, Cyberstorm, he seems character. really decent, <laughs> yeah. and he seems like, uh, yeah, uh, you know, trustworthy. And but, but like a MacGyver character that can like, you know, create, make a a gun out of like a paper paper clip and uh, some bubble gum or something. Like, yeah, he, he is, he is that character. And I, I, he's actually a really fun character. And because of he, it's interesting because I've already written him in a future book where he becomes the creator. And also he becomes the richest person on the planet, um, you know, 50 years in the future, but because I've already written his future and that he's obsessed with predicting the future, I've taken him as a young man where he's just developing that obsession 
which is kind of fun actually because I already know his endpoint. So it's again like the big story arc where you've got the end point and the beginning point, and then you let the the middle. How do they how do they get from the from the beginning to the end? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's going to be fun. That'll be a fun thing over the next couple of years as I develop him. And I'm thinking actually of of having all those books in the same universe. So I might actually tie together the have Delta Devlin living in the same universe as Atopia and Cyber. So Atopia and Cyberstorm are obviously in the same universe. And I think I might have them all do an Avengers Endgame kind of thing. <laughs> Where they, they interact yeah. with each other. Yeah. They, uh, well, it's one of the main themes in Meet Your Maker, your new one, is the fact that Delta Devlin, because she can see all of these colors that most people can't see, she can, she can see subtleties in the human face and so she can uh, she can tell uh, when people are lying because of the subtle right. ways in which they flush and their the blood flow to their face and to their nose and their which, eyes which is which is a real thing if you look it's up, a real thing if yeah. you look up thermal lie detection there's a whole thing in the cia and fbi papers and all kinds of stuff where they've they use um uh, thermal imaging, so infrared imaging, to to look at blood flow around the periorbital areas of the eyes and forehead, to to recognize what patterns uh, people, um, what patterns of blood flow indicate that somebody's lying or not. Although this is more complicated as we get in and meet your maker, like talking about lying. Like if somebody is lying because they want to have some net personal gain, that's usually where you have the blood flow and the heat flush in the face. Whereas if somebody's lying because they they think they're doing it for a greater good, they won't like get the it. Like the director, wow, she's a yeah. diabolical So you won't, you won't be lying. Yeah. And then there's also bullshitting, which is where you're telling the truth and you're lying at the same time. And then there's gaslighting where, you know, we have a few instances of gaslighting in the, <laughs> the popular media. I won't get into that. But where the, the actual person that's telling the story isn't even bullshitting, but they're creating an alternate reality, which they actually may believe in. And so, uh, and so they're not even lying. So you can have like, there's, there is lie detection is not a simple thing because lying is not a simple thing. You don't, sometimes people don't even know they're lying or sometimes people believe their own lies. They, you know, it's a very complicated phenomenon, uh, which we explore a little bit, um, in Meet Your Maker. Uh, yeah, no, it's, future. and it's really, it's really well done. It's, uh, you know, I don't know if you've read Malcolm Gladwell's new book, Talking to Strangers. I've I've met Malcolm. The, uh, He's actually published my my publisher in uh, uh, in New York. They they published Malcolm Gladwell's books. Um, oh wow! So yeah, yeah, yeah. His well, his new book, Talking to Strangers, is a lot of it is all about lying, and um, and how how well we are at detecting when other people are lying, and one of the things he the case he makes in many different ways. It, actually, he has one of the the second chapter of the book is all on the infiltrations of the CIA and how, like, there was this one woman who was working, like, reporting directly to Fidel Castro. She made her way all the way up in the American intelligence apparatus. She was the um, in control of the the Cuba file. And she was a spy that was like reporting directly to Fidel Castro. And she got away with this for years. Nobody got a lot of inside information. Nobody detected her. Uh, Nobody detected her, even though like her, her boy, her boyfriend was um, FBI, if I remember correctly. Her brother was also like, was in the CIA. She had like, 
nobody detected a thing. She got all she got away with it, and and then he gives like numerous examples. Which she still how easy how easy like uh, it is for people to infiltrate and get away with like big lies, and so you saying people that lie get all the way to the highest levels of the U.S. government. <laughs> Is that the example you're giving? <laughs> yeah, kind of. Yeah, uh, we're not. We're not. But, be but his uh, his we're explanation is pretty is point. pretty amazing. He says that um, that in fact we have been wired by evolution to like to trust to trust each other because like in for most of our evolutionary past, what was most important, and this comes through in Cyberstorm very clearly, actually. Uh, what was most important was our group cohesion and cooperation and competition within our group or like kind of being constantly second guessing people all the time. That was like not, that was really counterintuitive and it was not very useful at all. So like we, we default to truth. We, we default to faith and trust. That is our, our default across the board. And so you think that's still true? Um, I think it's mostly true. And he, he basically, he makes the case, he gives like many, many different examples from all different things. And he says that there's, there's been this promise for the longest time. Oh, we have this new technique, which is going to detect lies and, oh, it's thermal. And he goes into the thermal thing. He goes into the, oh, watch where people look, watch where people, but he said, the thing is, is like, uh, the problem with all of these is that if you trust somebody, you're not going to be thinking about all these things. It's only once somebody you're, you suspect them that you start like putting them through these paces and you might like trip them up and you might catch them. But unfortunately you're also going to catch lots of people who are just high functioning autistic people who are on the spectrum, people who are like, uh, he, he gives like a number of like really freaky examples where, there's just lots of people who are kind of awkward and they express their emotions in an atypical fashion. And so they can seem like they're lying and they're actually just uncomfortable or they're just like, they're just awkward. They're just weird. I mean, lying, like I said before, lying is not just one thing. Like if you, if you believe you're lying for your own personal gain, you'll have a very different, um, a different physiological response and a different way that you're looked. Then if you're, then you're lying, if you're lying to try and help somebody else, or if you, if you think you're doing it for a greater good, or if you've convinced yourself of something like it's, it's a, if you're a true the believer. Tru- I mean, yeah. yeah, if you're a true believer and the, the truth, I mean, you know, objective reality is also, um, a bit of a squirrely thing, you know, what, what is, you know, what is reality and that now we can go into a whole metaphysical, you know, wormhole, rabbit hole diving down in there, but it is, it is coming up with a version of objective reality that everybody can share is a very difficult thing also. And so trying to discern between what, what some, somebody who's lying and not lying just based on, you know, physiological responses is, 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 I don't think is something that's going to, going to be able to, to work. Although the detectives out there will try and do it. <laughs> yeah. Where did you come up with the character? I mean, I almost, I wish I could get his costume as like a Halloween costume. His, his outfit, that amazing like fur coat that goes down to with like the hood Bondar, the, the Ukrainian. What a, like, he's like, like a Tarantino level amazing character. Where did Leonardo you, Bondar. what inspired him 
I, just, I have the, that image of him in the cave with the that coat. <laughs> like it just Lenny. Lenny's so going to come back. Actually, Lenny's going to come. He's got to come back. <clears throat> yeah, he's going to come back as a. Uh, on the book I'm writing now, uh, Delta meets uh, some of her long estranged family, and they'll have connections to Lenny Bondar, who actually we 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 talked about in the in Meet Your Maker. That that's a bit of fun when when you're writing a series, you get to have some of the characters come back. The foreshadowing, and they said, yeah, "Yes, the Ukrainians having... and the Irish have more in common than you know." And I was like, "What's going on there?" Yeah, well, that's. That's going to come back and be and and out of time. I said, um, "Yeah, I, I don't remember where Lenny Bondar came from. He's just uh, it, it, and one thing that I try to do. If anybody's actually listening to this and trying to write books, you have to make your characters memorable. Like make them stand out from each other. Like make one of them stick thin and you know have short cropped hair, and another one with a big flowing red beard and be like a bear of a man, which is Lenny Bondar. Um, another one with an eye patch, so that." You need to make it easy for your readers. And also, the, the cardinal sin is to have characters' names that start with the same letter. You never, ever... It's a very simple <laughs> rule. You never have any characters that have the same first letter. Like that's the, you, so when you're setting up a structure for a book, you always have to make sure they've all got different first letters for their names, and their names sound different phonetically when you pronounce them. And try to keep them short. I'm just giving a, a short, short lecture on character. But you, you want to make them memorable. And each one of them actually... Um, you want to describe them. You want to make them memorable so they stand out in somebody's memory. So I'm glad that Lenny stood out in your in your mind. Oh, lots uh, of them did. I just he especially was just so weird. I mean, he's just such an interesting. Right. So you want to create like, weird, you know, different characters. And again, that comes down to escapism. When you're, you know, when you're, uh, I can't remember who it was. I was talking about uh, writing books. Would so be your character. You want to have um, your scenes and situations like your. The scenes and locations in your book should be like characters. You want to pick them so they stand out and they're, you know, the typical when you're doing a James Bond thing, you want to pick the most exotic location somebody hasn't been to. So you get to do a little bit of escapism. It's the same thing with characters. You want to make everything memorable and fun. And yeah, I, I mean, like I said, I'm not trying to be Dostoevsky. I'm just trying to, <laughs> trying to, when you read a book, I want you to have fun and learn something and, and finish it and go, wow, that was fun. You know, let's go down the ride again. And, yeah. Yeah. No, Lenny, Lenny Bondar was just, I was trying to figure out, he just seemed like a, like an Elon Musk combined with like all these different, you know, very, <laughs> Elon Musk, he comes up a lot. Very, yeah. Well, I mean, he's, he's quite a, he's quite a character, you know, but um, yeah, just like these bizarre, I mean, I think in terms of being sympathetic to d- different human types, if, if there's one human type that you seem to be hard on or harder than, than others, it's definitely, uh, and this makes sense. I'm waiting seeming to hear what you're you. say. <laughs> um, it's the kind of tech bros. Like you definitely, uh, you definitely are harder on them then, for instance, Neil Stevenson is in his novels for the most part. You tend to sort of, you, you're a little bit, you're more suspicious of their idealism and of their, like, their, you know, oh, we're just doing this, like, because we want to bring freedom to the world and we want to, like, and you're, there's a, you're more... Suspicious of them? Yes, you're much more suspicious of their kind of libertarian dreams, uh, than than you are of well, of I, other human types in your and I guess that maybe is because that's that's your old crew that's your 
Well, I mean, your old stomping grounds. I mean, I was I was a tech entrepreneur before this, and you know, I mean, you just have to listen to Peter Thiel doing his libertarian dream type of thing. (laughs) I mean, Billy, people who become who live in. I mean, we all live in our own created reality, you know. And um, uh, as we're going to talk about the next book, I mean, there are when you say there's not, you know, you can talk about a multiverse of worlds where there's all kinds of different versions running around, but. Even in the world that we live in, there's multiple versions of you. Like, there's a version of me that lives in your mind, where you see what I, you know, what I seem like in your world, and then there's a version of me that lives in my wife's mind. There's like a thousand different versions of me that are, that are existing, um, that are existing out there. And I think, um, I'm not sure where it's going with this because I'm a bit lost now. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, but I, th- but I think there is. Like, if you listen, do you ever listen to that guy? He's yeah, he's totally enraging, but he loves Peter Thiel, uh, Scott Adams. Yeah. You know, his podcast. And, like, he just, I, I sort of hate listening to him sometimes, you know, like his podcast. But he it represents, like, a, a particular human type to me that has existed probably at least as far back as the agricultural revolution in our species. And Max Weber, in his book on the sociology of religion, he has this wonderful section. It's so sad. He, he was one of the people that died of the Spanish flu right after World War One. But he was just, he had been struggling with depression for a bunch of his life. He was so screwed up. He had to drop out and just kind of, he was like a agoraphobic home guy who was messed up for years and years after having had this crazy, crazy promising beginning career. Boom, he flames out, super, super depressed for like years and years. He finally clawed his way back to like sanity and a productive life started producing just like the most amazing things of of his life. He was just going from strength to strength. Boom, he gets hit by the Spanish flu. But anyway, w- when he was in that period, he he planned out this like multi-volume. It was going to be like 15 volumes on just this panoramic, brilliant um study of the sociology of religion all over the world. And uh and he wrote like the introductory books and he sketched out some like and just his sketches for books are absolutely brilliant. But in his in his first book in the sociology of religion, he just lays out like he, he has these throwaway ideas of a paragraph and the entire paragraph is like so brilliant and pure gold. But he says in one of them, he says, uh, uh, the idea that all of the world is just an illusion and it's just conventional. We all just create our own reality. And the idea that it's all just a product of your mind. This idea has always emerged among government bureaucrats in central cities who are uh, totally disconnected from uh, from military. So they don't have to like like cut anybody. Actually, they don't have to deal with the physicality of war and, and violence in a real way. Um, they're disconnected for agriculture. They don't have to deal with worms and with dirt and with the soil and with actual the physicality and the reality of like dealing with the soil. Right. They don't deal. They're not involved in animal husbandry, like chopping off heads of chickens and things like that, and like you know watching pigs copulating. They're all men. Um, they're all men. They don't menstruate. They don't get pregnant. They don't have kids. They tend to be uh, celibate. Um, or at least officially celibate, so they don't have to live with a woman who has any of these things. Uh, and he said, 
he said, this idea has emerged, and he gives all these different ideas. He says it emerges in Buddhism among the government bureaucrats and religious officials in South Asia and in China. It emerges like – and you can even see it all the way now to that it emerges in places like Is San Francisco with the tech people or with like Michel Foucault, who's you know, a postmodernist there who's like you know a gay man who's not with women <clears> – <throat> who lives in an urban area, is disconnected from military agriculture, all those things. And it's Scott Adams. He lives in his home. He often doesn't leave his own house for uh, weeks and weeks at a time. He's completely kind of like lives. And surprise, surprise, he thinks we live in a multi We all just sort of create our reality, man. Like like we all it's, – it's an idea that appeals to – the Peter Thiel people. It yeah. appeals to people who live a very bloodless, disconnected reality. But to people who actually are living in a more... Uh, I think that's an interesting point. I mean, there are... Um, uh, like, if you, if you delve into the physics of the mind and the way that we, we do create... I mean, there's the ultimate... I, you know, when you're talking about um, can I really prove that you're real or that I'm real or that we're living in a simulation... Um, there's a whole set of books that I wrote in uh, the Utopia Chronicles where um, there's a, a, a very solid argument that we're actually living in a simulation, where actually the chances that we're not living in a simulation are vanishingly small just because of the way that, that um, the technology evolves and the way that our minds evolve, like we're definitely living inside of it. You can convince yourself that we're living inside of a simulation. And so when you get to that point, then... You can't, can, you really can't prove that you exist or that anybody else exists because I could be the only person that exists and everybody else is a mindless zombie and you can never disprove that. Um, of course, this kind of feels like a mushroom trip or something where nobody else exists <laughs> and creating all these realities, but you can never disprove these things. And when I'm writing some of these books like Atopia Chronicles, where you've got these endless realities and you create a virtual reality and, and actually in that book, we, I have you, you, people are able to create these uh, perfect simulated, like a perfect virtual reality that's perfectly simulated in every single, in every single way. And the characters in that book, it's like the Turing test where if I have, if I create an, an intelligence and I can't tell that, that, and I can, I talk to that intelligence and I can't tell if that intelligence is a person or not, then by default, you have to say that it's a person and we've created an artificially intelligent, you know, entity if that, if I can't tell if it's not a person or not. So if I created a virtual reality and I'm not able to tell whether that virtual reality is real or not, have you actually created a, a virtual reality that is a portal into another alternate universe that that exists somewhere out there? And have you transported yourself into that alternate? Um, you know, if, you, if if there's if the virtual reality is so real you can't tell if it's real or not, then maybe it is real. Yeah, but that's the. I know I've gone off on another segue here. No, no, no. That's uh, that actually. I. I I really like that idea because it seems to me that that whole Turing test, that whole way of thinking about things, to me is is somehow darkly related to the history of slavery and to the history of of various <laughs> kinds of oppression. The Turing, well, the Turing it's, test because you want to know it, it. To me, when I when I think about that, the whole kind of intellectual history that leads to that being an interesting question. It basically comes from a tradition of, do I need to treat you like a human being? Like, oh, you're my slave. You, no, I, you're an instrument. You're a woman. You're like a thing that I use. You're like, so it's, it's trying, how can I tell if you're like a gentleman 
uh, of of certain standing where I have to treat you like an equal. Do you think the Turing test comes from that, though? I mean, I think the fact that it's an interesting question comes from a kind of a history of dehumanization. And if you were to take well, like a Martin well, that's exactly Buber, right. we we do tend to dehumanize. Yeah. And and society is at the point like when you say, "Hey Siri, you know, get me this or do that for me." You don't say. Is Siri? Yeah, is Siri a person? At what point do you determine personhood? What point? And then what point do these machines have rights? And humans have been incredibly bad at at giving rights to things that might be thinking or feeling or you know uh, or have you know. At what point does something deserve to exist in its own way? And we are at the point where we are creating machines where we maybe we have to answer that question. And we've been terrible we've been terrible even with people that we can see are humans or are our wives and we don't assign them the same rights and and freedoms and things that to the to those people imagine how bad we'll be to the next generation of digital slaves which we've already which we're already telling and ordering around and and this is a real and and maybe it does come from a history of that you know in the past is this thing is this person is this entity in front of me a person that has the same rights or should have the same or be accorded the same respect that I accord to other people that are on certain levels, you know, whatever the caste structure or something is. And yeah, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting, um, well, it's I, an interesting I just think that's why, point. that's why it's, it, you have to sort of ask, sort of go behind the question and say, why is this an interesting question to people asking this? Tra- and to me, it seems it very often is connected to, having a certain idea about like who is a, a person and who's not. If you take if you take a kind of Martin Buber's like I and thou perspective, where or like an animist perspective, where you just your default position is that everything has some kind of life force and dignity. So you you treat the stream as a thou. You treat the mountain as a thou. You and treat the cat as a thou. And that's a very current you thinking know. in and even in in uh, in scientific circles and I were talking about assigning consciousness to everything a rock and the cosmos has consciousness and you know the gaia gaia how about you know that yeah is actually conscious i mean that that is that's something that's very current in 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 a lot of scientific um circles and thinking now as well well i think if you have if you have as your default position to treat um the things in your environment with respect as if they have some sort of integrity and some sort of... Do you step on ants when you see them? Uh, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> not on purpose. Uh, but, I mean, if, if you have that kind of experience of thou, that kind of respect for things, and if that becomes a kind of a habit of the heart, a habit of love, a habit of respect, a habit of treating rocks with respect and things with respect, and if that becomes just like a way of being in the world, then the Turing test doesn't becomes so much of an interesting question anymore because why would I want to treat something in an abusive way? Because that would just train me in a different way. I mean, there's are a you re- ni- are you nice to Siri? Uh, I I don't use Siri at all. <laughs> but I don't use Siri. It's funny, you know. We were talking about this before we went on. Be nice to the your interview. robot. Yeah. Be nice to your robot overlord. <laughs> they will remember in 50 They'll years. They'll remember it, right? When you weren't nice to Siri, it'll come back to bite you in it's, 50 years. So just be nice. Just be nice. <laughs> one, of the, one of the things that is, uh, that is very common, you know, and I hear this from my students who are, a lot of my students who are recent immigrants from, from particularly certain countries where uh, 
I've specifically heard this from a lot of students who are like Coptic Christians and from Mm -hmm. wealthy backgrounds in like North Africa, like Egypt and stuff. And they grew up, they're fleeing religious persecution. That's why they end up here. I've been to Egypt. Uh, I've been inside the Great Pyramid, the main circle. Oh, wow. But they lived in a position of great privilege there. They have uh, labor super, super cheap. And so if you have money, you have a driver that drives you everywhere. You have maids that like clean your house. You have cooks that you have people to do like everything for you. And you have people that look after your kids. And because these are all like the help and they're disposable and super, super cheap, you talk to them like crap, right? And so they would tell me these stories about how like moving to Canada and suddenly their parents are totally like going through massive culture shock because they have to actually take care of their own kids. They've never done that before. They have to cook. They don't have to cook. Uh, and if they do have like... Where is this magical land I can move where everybody uh, will do stuff for me? Uh, pretty much <laughs> anywhere in the third world, if you have money, you can pay people to do a lot of things for you. But what the more interesting thing that we talk about in my, my love and friendship class is that this inculcates a certain kind of... Uh, habit a way of dealing with people where you talk to people like shit like you treat people like garbage and you're so used to doing that that when you now get in an environment where people aren't going to put up with that because they'll quit or they'll be like they're not going to take that from you it's very hard for people to learn how to talk properly and so you know we were talking about Yuval Noah Harari before we we came Mm -hmm. on and you're you're a big fan of Sapiens and Homo Deus as well as I am a Yemmer in Homo Deus, he brings up exactly that point you just said about Siri. He said, if a kid is brought up with these robots that you order around and you're completely rude with them because you, you just have to give them commands, how is that going to shape that kid's personality when he or she then goes in the world and has to deal with people? If you've just been like growing in an environment where you just like order something around all the time, like how are you going to deal with real people? Yeah, I mean that's that's a very yeah. I mean I hadn't hadn't really thought about it uh, in that way, but um, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. I mean, <laughs> apart from the, you know the the humans are pretty good at uh, you know when when back in the nineties. Or and even recently, actually, when when saying that if you play violent video games, it makes kids go out and shoot people in the real world. I don't think that that's been proven to be. Oh no, it's totally disproven. Right, yeah. so that's not a a real thing. So I think that uh, I have confidence that kids who learn to ask Siri to do things for them will will see a distinction between the digital world and 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 the real world. But both of those things are merging, and I, and that's a, a topic that uh, bringing it all back to my writing. The uh, in Cyberstorm, the whole idea, and, and in Cyberstorm and Utopia and in Meet Your Maker, it's all the blurring of the line between the digital world and the uh, and the physical world. Like, what happens with that at that inter- intersection point or that interface point? And that's 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 always the point that, that really interests me. That sort of friction point between one world and the other world, and um, and things that we can learn from that. So I mean, that's that's kind of what you're what you're talking about. How do you, how do you make that distinction? How do you make that leap? What happens if you you talk rudely to Siri, but then you have to talk nicely to somebody else. You know, does Siri deserve to be talked to nicely, or are we just training ourselves? I don't, yeah, I don't have an answer for that. Those are interesting questions. Yeah, you also in Meet Your Maker. Once again, I don't want to give away any of them, but you talk a lot about like deep fakes and yeah, how that's, like that's 
that I found really, really, really creepy. Like the fact that you can, you can manufacture fake DNA evidence. You can manufacture fake video evidence. You can like, right. I mean, that's, and you, you got that from real stuff, right? Like that's, well, you know, it's fine. When I wrote, I wrote Meet Your Maker almost two years ago now. And deep fake technology was just when I was, st- and when I put down the ideas for that story three years ago, like deep fake was like right on the, cu- the right on the, the bleeding edge. But now you can download the thing into your TikTok app and create a deep fake of your mother and father, you know, like of anybody, on, and it can be convincing. Um, so it's amazing in the space of two or three years that went from like bleeding edge technology that nobody would have believed to something you can download on your app and and you know do yourself in the afternoon and. and 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 this is going to cause, you know, it's causing chaos because we already have, you would have thought, you know, 20 years ago, if you had, or not 20 years, let's go all the way back to the 1960s. If somebody said, here's the world that we have. Now imagine a world where we've got access to all the world's information and everybody can access anything at any point in time they want to make a decision on something. You would have said, that would be great. Like, we'll have an amazing society. But now we get to the point where we have all that information and nobody can decide anything because nobody knows what is true or not anymore. And things like deep fake technology is going to make, even when somebody, you see a video of them, a politician speaking, you're not going to know if that's real or not. And we have to rely on our Facebook overlords to tell us that this content is true or not. And then you don't even trust them. So there's like, how do you even know what we're inundated with so much information? We don't even know what's real or not real anymore. And that is pretty, that's creating these problems that we're seeing in society right now. I don't, and I don't know what the easy way to, like, the more information we get, the more paralyzed we become. Um, and seeing as we're doubling the amount of information about every two or three years, that the total, like, the total human, the total sum total of all human information used to be, like, Encyclopedia Britannica, and then, like, every three years we keep on doubling that, and it's still doubling every two or three years. Like, the total, amount of information that humans have right now, we'll have twice as much information in two or three years and twice as much again in two years after that. And it's just this this pipeline of information is hitting you like a fire hose and you're just like how do you how do you parse it? How do you make any sense of it? And and that's a I don't know how to do that apart from going to the woods and just sitting and looking at the lake. <laughs> and then all of a sudden the fire hose is turned off and they go, holy this is I think what you were talking about, like just getting you know, getting back to simpler, uh, getting back to simpler things. That's the way I deal with it is going into nature and just turning off for a while. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, that's what works for me as well. Just, just to sort of remind myself, you know, as I'm getting like bit by the mosquitoes, like there is a real world out there. It's not all, because if you just spend, like, if you sit there in front of your laptop, like you can for a long time staying indoors, ordering takeout, stuff like that, you can get into this headspace where, it really feels like everything is just this manufactured because it kind of is in that world. It is, you know. And then, but every once in a while, like the the real world inserts itself, and then you realize, like, oh, there actually is like a, a world that you know has like makes demands of me and things like that. But it's it's there's an interesting parallel because uh, Neil Stevenson's last novel, Fall, which there's a lot of very interesting parallels between fall and meet your maker you're both kind of in a way dealing with with similar like a lot of similar issues and he also like you seems just completely at a loss like there's no like there's a character in fall who decides okay i'm gonna 
I'm going to prove to everybody that Facebook is bullshit, that social media is bullshit. I'm going to like burst the bubble by uh, he basically creates like a deep fake hoax that a nuclear bomb is detonated in this place called Moab, Utah. And he creates like fake uh, like cell phone footage of somebody in a plane seeing the mushroom cloud and feeling, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, oh my god, and like it goes viral and like uh, fake uh, footage of people coming with horrible radiation wounds out of like the area, and it comes out pretty soon within a day or two that it's a total hoax. It doesn't work. There's all these Moab truthers who are like, oh, the government covered it up, and they they believe like Moab's not there. And like, even though people go to Moab, they were crisis actors. It's not actually like, it's uh, it's completely weird. I mean, there's no there's no easy way out of this. But, well, there uh, is there is no it, it, yeah, I can see that happening. Um, yeah, I, as I said, the only I, if I spend too much time on the, you know in the in the digital world and um, especially in social media. Um, this leads to anxiety disorder, I think. And yeah. Anxiety. Like you just, and then as soon as you disconnect and don't pay any attention to it for a little while, it's like it doesn't exist, that whole world. And then you turn your phone back on and you jump back into Facebook and it's just all there again and all this crazy shit, for lack of better Yeah, it, it really is. Yeah. yeah. Well, that's a, a wonderfully dark place to, to finish. <laughs> Sorry, we so we'll, <laughs> we'll finish there. So, so your next book, I, I encourage all listeners to definitely... Um, I, I would say, I would say actually read, I, I read, uh, Cyberstorm, then I read Meet Your Maker, his, uh, new book, Matthew's new book, and then I read The Dreaming Tree. Um, I personally found that a really great, uh, order. Um, I don't think, I mean, what would you recommend as the writer? Would you say, read? Cyberstorm's the easiest one to uh, to get into, although it is a bit of an emotional roller coaster. It's very, very tense. It's very, 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 very tense. It's pretty, it's pretty intense when you go through it. Um, and and I think part of that is just that I make it very realistic with the characters and the families, and it's just trying to live through this this real feels like a real world type of event. But yeah, Cyberstorm's the easiest one to get into. Darknet's one of my favorites, which uh, you haven't uh, I'm, read I'm yet. I'm starting that tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. but they, yeah, meet your maker. They. I mean, I design, I do design all of my books to be complete standalones, although yes. some of them have yeah. characters that interchange from one to the other. Um, so you can kind of dive in um, to any one of them that you, that you like. And, um, um, yeah. But Cyberstorm is, is, is the most famous one, which actually we do have, a, it is being developed as a film now, which I can't give too much detail on, but um, we have a director and a producer, and they're, everything's all lined up for that, so... It would make such a good. It would be even better if they could make it as like a Netflix series. They could have like a few, because, I mean, just you could have different episodes going. Like uh, each episode could have because I love the way you organize it. Like it's just these these moments. It'll be like you know seven p.m. December twenty yeah. fourth, <laughs> and then it's like three p.m. You know, New Year's Day. It's like they it goes just like these. Yeah, day one and like day two, it's so intense. Yeah, I used I used those, you know, the the three a.m. and the three you know three o four a.m. to kind of ratchet up the uh, the tension, which works pretty effectively in there. I don't do that too often. Usually, I just let the story flow, but in that one, I actually use those time markers to um, 
yeah, it was kind of it was fun. It was fun. I enjoyed writing that book. Yeah, I I loved it, but it was it was very very tense. I I I think I I needed like couple glasses of wine and, and aspirin <laughs> and then to go to sleep afterwards because your your stomach is just like in knots when you read that because it's it's so relentless it is, and actually you know when i wrote that book i was being a bit of a method actor but i uh, the characters they they go through an event where they run out of food at some point and so i actually went i went three days without eating so i starved myself and then went through the whole process of feeling what it feels like to run out of food and the, the obsessive thoughts that go through your head. So I went and actually removed food from my environment while I was writing it. And, and actually Whoa. the last scene when they're actually, when he's walking into Washington, I actually went and I went, I went to the start of that road and drove down it. And so all from the Shenandoah. To yeah. Like- the Shen- so actually that's all the, the visual points that you see in that, or actually I went there myself and, uh, and drove down that road and, and and stopped at all the points along the way. That's wild. Yeah. I mean, because I've been on that road, yeah, plenty of times. I've, I've gone down hiking. Shenandoah, I've so. gone hiking around there lots yeah. of times, uh, and the descriptions sounded right. They sounded yeah. like that sounds yeah, like I you can yeah. No, I've actually been. I've actually paddled down. I like. I'm a canoe enthusiast, so I've paddled down a lot of rivers. Yeah. Shenandoah is one of them. Well, Shenandoah is not as wild as I usually like to get, but it's a nice, it's a nice river to go paddling down. Yeah. Wow. Well, I I would really love to have you on the podcast again when your next book comes out. And Absolutely. I'm uh, I'm just I thank you so much for creating these these worlds, these amazing worlds. Well, thank thank then, you. Yeah. I've, I've been very humbled by all of your your uh, your, your praise. So thanks very much for reading. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Thank you.